This is Rolling Rocks Radio with Jerry Armentrout, Cody Carter, and Scott Barker. What's up, Rolling Rocks fam? So, Jerry and I did get together to train this week for our usual Sunday shenanigans, but I had to leave early uh, in order to actually see a lady about a horse. Um, Long story there, but needless to say. um, So, we didn't actually get to record the podcast together this week, so we're going to do a sipping separately. Um, Jerry's going to go over the fights and do a little mini seriously. And uh, so for my half of the show, um, I'm back to the bottle tonight. I'm drinking a nice glass of Old Forester bottled in bond. Um, Old Forester is quickly becoming one of my favorite brands. Their their flavors and consistency um, are very very nice. The the 115 proof Prohibition Edition may be my favorite sub fifty dollar bottle that's out there right now. Um, and talking with a friend of the the podcast and former guest Joe Lombardo of Scholars and Iron, that's one of the really cool things about bourbon is that you can you can find some really amazing bottles for, you know, I can definitely say under a hundred dollars, but you can find some real gems under fifty dollars. Um, so one of the cool things about bourbon is you don't have to be hunting down the three thousand dollar bottle of Pappy Van Winkle or uh, some of the other you know unicorn bottles that are out there to have a really good uh, a really good whiskey experience. There there's a ton of stuff out there. Like I said, at the sub hundred dollar level, sub fifty dollar level, some of my favorite bourbons are actually thirty dollar, twenty five dollar bottles. You know, if you can find um, you know early times bottled in bond, that's a fantastic bottle. That's I think it's a liter and a half for right around thirty five dollars. Any of the old Overholt products are, are excellent at, you know, again, that mid $30 price point. So there's a ton of, uh, of great whiskeys out there that are, again, certainly less than 100 and, and many less than 50 So, you know, don't turn your nose up at, at the, the, sub, the sub $50 bottles because you can find some real gems out there. Um, but, uh, so on for my... Uh, my contribution to today's show. So Jerry and I kind of owe our the Rolling Rocks fam a little bit of an explanation for the outro bumper music that we used on last week's show. Um, it sounded like a 70s TV commercial uh, for a, a, a karate dojo, and that's exactly what it was. If any of our listeners grew up in the... DMV area, you know, the the Washington, D.C., Maryland, Virginia area, there used to be this TV station uh, in Washington, D.C., and here in the Shenandoah Valley, if you had your antenna high enough and you had enough layers of aluminum foil on it, and if the wind was just right, you could get signal from WDCA Channel 20 out of Washington, D.C., home of the Washington Bullets, before they changed their name to the Washington Wizards because they were afraid that the name the Washington Bullets would uh, not portray too well considering the crime statistics in the, uh, in the city at the time. But WDCA was an awesome channel. Um, it had all the great science fiction movies on it, you know, when um, Creature from the Black Lagoon came out in 3D and you could go to 7-Eleven and get your 3D glasses, 
it came on WDCA. They did the Saturday morning creature feature, which was, you know, a low-grade B-movie, you know, Creature from the Black Lagoon um, movie that they did every uh, Saturday morning. Their before-school cartoons and after-school cartoons were awesome. Um, DCA 20 was the, uh, was my first exposure to anime because they played like the old seventies, like Transor Z and, um, into the eighties with like the Voltron and the Robotech series. So that's where I got my appetite for anime was on, um, a black and white TV in my bedroom waiting for the bus to come in the morning to pick me up when they would do, like from 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. cartoons before school. And then when you got home, they had the after-school cartoons. Um, they also had, um, I think it was the Sunday evening Kung Fu Theater, Friday night Kung Fu Theater, and it was kind of like what Jerry and I talked about last week. It was the nine blind, legless, armless monks, um, you know, the the old you know, kind of chop sake Kung Fu flicks. Um and some of those were animated, which was which were really cool. But the to to wrap the to pull this all into the the situation at hand, there was a commercial that came on WDCA. It seemed like it came on every commercial break, but it had this catchy jingle, and it was for a Taekwondo studio in the DC area called Junri Self Defense, and. It had this catchy jingle, and the the videos were great. It had, or the the video for the commercial was great. It had um, folks in white geese doing uh, taekwondo forms, and then it the thing that that always that I remember was there was a very fit, very jacked looking um, older Asian gentleman going through you know karate forms doing some some jumping maneuvers and then the the crescendo of the uh of the commercial of the jingle was nobody bothers me and sometimes you'll hear Jerry and I say that in the podcast when we're talking about self defense or maybe you know kids taking various martial arts you'll hear us say nobody bothers me and then at the end of the commercial after the jingle nobody bothers me there were these two very cute little uh, Asian kids and one of them said nobody bothers me and the second one says nobody bothers me either and winks at the camera well that was for Junri self-defense and Jerry and I both have very vivid memories of these commercials because again we both grew up in the Shenandoah Valley area and if you had a an antenna that was strong enough you could pick up this station and get get this commercial like bored into your brain it it showed at least every other commercial break so last week we um you know we we talked a little bit about um a little bit about bad kung fu movies and and some other things and and kids training martial arts with the um jerry's reference to to three little ninjas and the the nobody bothers me came up so I took a little slice of um, the Junri commercial and made it the exit bumper for for last week's show, just kind of out of a sense of nostalgia. Um, and honestly, I haven't caught up with what is going on with the Junri school franchise at all. Um, and to be fair, that's all I knew about the Junri self defense school was this commercial. Again, it was something that I saw. You know, probably from like the 
fourth grade up through the sixth grade before we actually got cable and could no longer get DCA-20. Um, and DCA-20 has gone through a bunch of different metamorphoses over the years. You know, it started as DC-20, it turned into one of the CW stations, then it turned into a digital um, cable channel, and it's now under some other form of syndication. So it's not the original DCA-20 that it used to be back in the late 80s. But anyway, so as part of an explanation for why we slid that little bit of the bumper in, I went out and I started looking around to figure out, you know, beyond the story that I just told you of how Jerry and I became familiar with the Junri Taekwondo system and that little jingle that is still stuck in my head, um, having not heard it for about 40 years, um, I came across a really interesting story about who Junri was. Um, and and I, again, I had no idea of this before I actually started researching this to, to try to give you guys a little bit of color on why we put that bumper music in. It turns out Junri is widely considered the father of American Taekwondo. Um, he was also one of the first um, martial arts studios to start using TV commercials and advertisements in newspapers, as well as providing after-school programs and like pick-up and drop-off programs for their kids' classes. So, um, you know, June would actually go pick up his younger students from elementary school, middle school, and then bring them to um, the dojo, and then you would have your after school and then some sort of daycare or supervised care until the parents could come pick them up after work. Um, June Rhee was actually a pioneer in martial arts marketing and school construction um, as far as from a, you know, coming up with the curriculum standpoint in, in American karate. Um, and his influence is probably felt in almost every, uh, martial arts academy, even in some jiu-jitsu academies throughout the nation. So I wanted to bring a little bit more knowledge back to who Junery was um, and his history and kind of what he's done for the martial arts community because it's actually a really cool story. Um, so Junery was actually born in Korea um, in on January 7th in 1932. This was during the period of Japanese occupation during World War II. Um, so while he was an infant, um, he had an accident um, and broke the bone in his thigh um, pretty badly. And Ree's family didn't think that he would ever be athletic. And because his leg was broken as an infant, um, he did not grow as quickly as you know his counterparts because his body was still healing at that time so you know he was smaller he didn't run as fast um so he was physically behind his peers but um at five years old he decided that somehow he's going to start training martial arts um which is an interesting, which again is an interesting story because during Japanese, the Japanese occupation of Korea, it was illegal for the Korean people to partake in any traditional Korean activities such as martial arts, folk songs, traditional seasonal festivals, all aspects of traditional Korean society. 
subjugated during the Japanese occupation. But anyway, so um, before turning five, like I said, Reed decided that in order to compensate for his size, he wanted to study martial arts, but he couldn't because there were no martial arts schools allowed, let alone near Reed's home. So in order to get ready for uh, his future training in martial arts, Ree began lifting weights and working out to begin uh, to build up his strength so that when he could train martial arts, he would be ready. So around five, he started calisthenics and training, um, and that continued until he was 13 when he moved to Seoul to enroll in the Dongsung High School. And I'm pulling a lot of this information from... Um, his biography on uh, the Junery website, which we'll link to uh, in the show notes. Um, it's a very interesting read. I'm going to try to go through it, you know, relatively rapidly here. There's about 20 pages um, worth of uh, information on Re there. So in, if you want to learn more about it, go check it out. We'll link to it in the show notes. Um, so anyway, he, uh, he continued training until he was about 13. Then he moved to Seoul to enroll in high school. After starting high school, not only did he continue his weight training, but he continued to improve himself beyond uh, just his schooling. He taught himself to teach, he taught himself to play violin. Uh, he learned to play Korean folk songs by ear because of course none of them were allowed to be written down due the due to the subjugation of the Japanese. Um, and he also taught himself to play harmonica. So, in 1945, when Ri turned 14, Korea gained independence from Japanese colonial rule. What that meant is that Korean martial arts and and Korean culture could be expressed openly. So, um, at this point, when the occupation ended in 1945, Korean martial arts schools began to open. One of the first ones that opened was opened by Grandmaster Wan Kuk Lee, um, and it was based on traditional Korean martial arts, um, but it also incorporated other influences such as combat techniques, self-defense, there was a sporting aspect, there was a physical fitness and exercise aspect to it, and this is the style that eventually became to be known as Taekwondo. So... At 15, re-enrolled in the Kung Du Kwan, which was Grandmaster uh, Wong Kuk Lee's Taekwondo Academy in Seoul. And for the first three months, um, Junri didn't tell his dad that he was taking martial arts because at that time in Korea, um, martial arts had a very poor reputation among the populace and was considered to be little better than street fighting. That's kind of an interesting tie-in because Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, um, you know, our forefather Japanese Jiu-Jitsu, was also considered to be a you know, a lower brow sport or a lower brow um, martial art that was used by street hooligans and street fighters, whereas you know, Judo was the more high class, well respected martial art. Um, but uh, Japanese jiu-jitsu was really considered, you know, for the street thugs and the street fighters. So there's a there's a, an interesting tie-in there. Um, the other thing that happened in 1947 was 
um, with the end of the Japanese occupation, American movies were starting to be shown in local Korean theaters. So Re started seeing American movies, the the promise of America, the the, the prosperity that he had there, and he was trying to figure out how could he get to America. And he realized that the secret to him getting to America and building the life that he wanted was he wanted to introduce Taekwondo to America and earn his living there as an instructor. Um, but that's still a little farther down the road, right? Ree's still, uh, still in high school at this point. So in 1950, June Ree was accepted to the Dongkuk University. Um, but unfortunately... On June 25th of 1950, the Korean War broke out. So instead of pursuing his studies and moving on to try to figure out how to come to America and teach Taekwondo, Ree and his nine-year-old brother fled south to be with their grandfather. So they finally arrived around July 4th, only a couple of days before the North Korean Communist troops came through the area. Um, they stayed there for about a month, and even though the Korean troops were, were hanging around and you know, there was a lot of troop movement going on, um, Ree and his brother decided to head home uh, to their house, to, to their place in Suwon, because their mom was there alone. Now, the distance from their grandfather's home to their home in Suwon was really only about 90 miles, but the journey took three days because Ree and his brother had to travel on foot. They were regularly hiding from air attacks and from communist troop uh, patrols. And they were helped along the way by friendly strangers who hid them and fed them because they were, you know, two young men on the road trying to get home to see their mom. Um, so they finally made it to Suwon. They met up with their mother. They stayed uh, with their mom for a very short period of time, but by August, Ree had to go underground. Um, Ree had turned 18 years old, and if he were discovered to be staying with his mom, he would have been forced to register um, a, as a and probably be drafted into the North Korean Army. So for about two months, Ree lived in the cellar um, until the Americans landed and pushed the Communist Army north beyond Pyongyang. So on roughly around September, late September uh, 1950, Ree came out of hiding and was ready to join up with the Americans and try to fight for his country. So by November, Ree had joined a unit of the U.S. Air Force working as an interpreter. Um, he got very good marks in English uh, in high school. Uh, so he was putting his uh, his English to work in a uh, in a form that I don't think he ever really expected. So over the next year, Ree continued to work as an interpreter for the British as well as the Americans, and he was drafted into the South Korean Army and began his service in the 101st Battalion. Battalion life was pretty rough. Um, you know, it's the South Korean Army. They didn't have a lot of material. The the barracks were. Um, not very well kept up. They were sharing blankets. They were sharing clothing. It was it was pretty arduous um, and uh, austere conditions. So, hoping to get out of battalion, Ree decided to apply for officer cadet training school. 
Now, this was a really this was a really risky um, move for Reed to make because after graduation from Cadet Corps, the casualty rate in the Officer Corps was over seventy percent. So, even though the accommodations might have been a little bit better, um, it was you know, it was over 50-50 chance that he was going to be killed on the battlefield. But in, you know, in order to try to better himself, he applied for the cadet training school. Um, So as his training cycle was coming to an end, everybody was getting ready to uh, file out of the cadet officer corps and and get fielded to their unit. Um, Right before the training ended, um, in 1953, Ree's deployment was only a couple of days away. The truce was declared and the war was over. So all of the 250 cadets in Ree's class basically had been spared certain death. Um, rather than continue in the officer corps, uh, he decided to switch focus to weather and aircraft maintenance. Um, and after he... Uh, completed his training, he was actually assigned to be an instructor uh, and teach others. After about a year and a half into his instructor's assignment, he learned of an opportunity for officers to train aircraft maintenance in the United States. So, aha, here's a chance to get to the United States. So, he uh, re-left for America in 1956. He landed in San Francisco in early June. And it was basically like the movies. You know, he landed in San Francisco, great California town at the time. Um, you know, pretty ladies, big buildings, pretty, you know, amazing cars. He wasn't in San Francisco for very long. He ended up flying to Austin, Texas, and then traveled by bus to Gary Air Force Base in San Marcos, um, where he began training in aircraft maintenance with the U.S. Air Force. While he was there, he joined a Methodist church and continued uh, to make inroads into the San Marcos community. In order for Reed to stay in America, he would have had to have found a sponsor family. And as his training session began to run out, he was still not finding any sponsors to allow him to stay in the country. And so right before he was scheduled to go back to Korea, the pastor at the Methodist Church made one final plea trying to find anybody in the congregation who would be willing to take on the responsibility of sponsorship. And to everybody's surprise, an elderly couple, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Robert L. Bunting, agreed to be Junery's sponsor. The only issue was, before he could come to America full-time and live here, he had to finish one last one-year term of enlistment in the South Korean Army. Um, so, Re flew back to South Korea, served out his 12 months, uh, his 12-month stint in the Korean Army, but in November of 1957, he got his honorable discharge package and was flying to the U.S., and when he landed, he had $46 in his pocket. By 1958, Ree had enrolled at San Marcos Southwest State College, and two years later, he transferred to the University of Texas in Austin to study engineering. Um, His plan was to finish his engineering degree in three years, but he got an unexpected opportunity in the summer of 1962. 
he got offered a job to teach karate at a school in Washington, D.C. So he dropped out of engineering school and he went from he went from Austin, Texas to Washington, D.C., which is a bit of a culture shock, and um, went to work teaching karate. Um, the only issue is that when he showed up at the school in D.C., he found out that there were only six students and that enrollment was so low that the school couldn't afford to pay re. So rather than head back to Texas and pick his studies back up, he had the taste of what he wanted. You know, he had he had this opportunity to go teach karate. He he dropped everything and decided to go for it. So rather than go back to Texas, he just decided to dive in even deeper. He doubled down on his own dream and decided to open his own martial arts studio. On June 28th, 1962, the very first Junri School of Taekwondo on K Street Northwest in Washington, D.C. opened. And this is where June's, I think one of June's real talents began to show itself, which was his savvy for marketing and making connections. So the first thing he did was he wrote uh, to a, a bunch of the ambassadors from around the world who were serving in D.C., telling them about his school, um, and he promised that not only would he teach their children Taekwondo, but he would make sure that their kids got all A's in school. He also ran a couple of small ads in the sports section of the Washington Post, and he was deluged by phone calls asking about the tuition and the class times. So when the when his first studio opened, there were more than 200 people who showed up to see uh, Jun Ri demonstrate Taekwondo for all of his prospective students. Now, his first studio was less than 1,000 square feet, and 200 people showed up. Um, he did have a guest of honor, um, opened the school for him, which was His Excellency, the Ambassador of South Korea, which was pretty freaking cool. Um, by the end of that first day, he had 12 people sign up. By the end of the month, he had 30 students. And by August, his enrollment was over 125. His next step uh, in his marketing genius is how Jerry and I came to know him. He began running DC. He began running TV ads in the DC area, becoming the first Taekwondo master to promote martial arts through TV advertising. And this is where the slogan "Nobody Bothers Me" got started, and went on to um, basically create the the June Re Empire. Um, the st and the story goes the the. The commercial that Jerry and I know is actually like the second or third uh, commercial. The first one was just the the Nobody Bothers Me jingle with the shots of the students in June demonstrating techniques without the two little kids at the end. Um, but as the TV commercial would play in the June household, Ree's three-year-old son, Chun, would respond to the TV by saying, Nobody Bothers Me Either. So eventually, Chun's sister Mei Mei and Chun began appearing at the end of the TV version. So 
um, Jun's daughter and Chun's sister, Mei Mei, is the first small child that says, nobody bothers me. And then Chun says, nobody bothers me either and gives that that this little wink at the end, which totally sells it. Um, and again, it was so popular that, you know, we've, we saw it here in the Valley. Um, if you do a quick YouTube search on nobody bothers me or June re you'll find the full version of the commercial. Um, and you'll also find, I believe it's the Ben folds five, um, doing a, um, a jam band version of the commercial on on YouTube. Okay, correction. It wasn't the Ben Ben Foles Five. It was Okay Go. My fault. Sorry. Um. So meanwhile, um, in his academies, Re began to adapt and modify his approach to martial arts rather than simply teach traditional Taekwondo. And this was based on June's interactions with everybody's favorite martial arts mastermind, Bruce Lee. So, um, Junri met Bruce Lee, um, in 1964 and knew, uh, Bruce Lee. They were friends until Bruce Lee died in 1973. And through their conversations, Lee convinced Re that, you know, following tradition blindly and not innovating leads to the stagnation um, in martial arts. Um, Re met Bruce Lee in August of 1964 when they met at Grandmaster Ed Park's International Karate Championships in Long Beach, California. Um, Re was 32, Lee was 23, and both men performed demonstrations and they were each impressed with each other's skills. They became became friends. They regularly visit each other and exchanged letters. Um, Junri started up a uh, or Junri started a tournament series called the Junri Nationals, and Lee attended every year from 1966 to 1970. So um, they were they were very very close friends. So after. Uh, this is actually pretty interesting. So in, in 1965, uh, after reading a newspaper accounts of how uh, Representative James Cleveland of New Hampshire had been mugged and injured near Capitol Hill, um, Ree called Cleveland's office and um, informed his office that they had a Taekwondo, Taekwondo school in D.C. and that uh, Junri would love to teach the representative martial arts. Um Representative Cleveland called back the next day asking about schedule and tuition, uh, and Re offered to teach the representative for free and offered to go to the go to the hill to save the representative's time. Um, representative Cleveland appreciated the offer so much that he told Re he would ask a few of his colleagues if they would be interested in training, um, and so that they could form a class on Capitol Hill. Um, this began the U.S. Congressional Taekwondo Club, which was started by June Ree. The club's first class was held in the House Members Gymnasium, uh, May 6th, 1965. Since then, more than uh, 350 members of Congress have attended classes and 19 earned their black belts. Over the years, the U.S. Congressional Taekwondo Club 
has made news on a couple of different occasions. This one is probably my favorite. In 1975, reorganized a tournament between Republicans and Democrats in sparring style karate. Um, it was aired on national television and re was reported on by the foreign press. Um, it was held at the D.C. Armory in front of a live audience of more than 5,000 people. All of the matches ended in a draw, which was a, a stroke of genius and, and statesmanship on June Ree's part. Um, he also, Junri also had a, a pretty big influence um, on martial arts as a whole. Joe Lewis, the, the well-known American kickboxer, point karate fighter, and actor, um, who was voted twice to be the greatest fighter in karate history, um, was uh, already an accomplished uh, martial artist uh, and still in the Marine Corps. Um, Lewis was not very fond of the idea of tournament-style competition. He believed that students in most karate schools didn't train very hard. Um, but in 1966, Lewis decided to check out June Ree's national championships. He wasn't planning on competing, but both June Ree and Bruce Lee managed to convince him to compete. Lewis later said that Junri, who I respect a lot, was the man who started my fighting career by talking me into the competition. I mean, come on, when you've got Junri and Bruce Lee both saying, hey man, you, you ought to compete in this, are you really going to say no? So Junri also um, was a pioneer in martial arts equipment. He was very concerned about safety for his students. One incident in particular really stuck with uh, June Ree. In 1969, um, at, a, at a championship tournament, one of his students took a hard kick to the face and it broke his cheekbone. Um, and Ree became determined to do something to reduce the frequency and severity of injuries related to martial arts practice. And the, the end result of this was the Junri safety equipment line of protective gear that covers uh, the hands, the feet, and the head, allowing full contact training and competition without the risk of serious injury. So if you think about point-style karate and Olympic taekwondo and you know a lot of the sparring, even a lot of the sparring gear that you know Muay Thai guys use, the shin guards, um, you know, the, the, the headgear that was actually, um, created by June Ree, which again was something that, that I didn't know. Um, and the fact that June Ree believed that the very fact that there is now safety, uh, equipment for martial arts changed the nature of martial arts for the better, removing the stigma of violence and attracting more women and children to uh, take part in, in the martial arts. So uh, you can't help but figure that because Junri knew uh, Bruce Lee, there was going to be a movie tie-in, and there is. In 1972, Bruce Lee wrote to, to Ree that he had approached Go Golden Harvest Films, who was the Hong Kong-based film uh, studio that shot many of Bruce Lee's most famous films about making a Taekwondo movie starring June Ree. Um, you know, June was excited, 
didn't thought it would happen, never really thought of himself as an actor. But later in the summer of 1973, June flew to Hong Kong to fill The Sting of the Dragon Master, which was also known as When Taekwondo Strikes. In the movie, replays Grandmaster Lee, who is an underground leader of a group of patriots in Japanese-occupied Korea. So the, the storyline is very similar to the Itnan um, stories where, you know, it's still the occupation of China by the Japanese. You know, very similar, um, very similar plot. But um, not only did he star as the main protagonist, but he also wrote the synopsis uh, that went along with the marketing for the movie. So again, Ree's talent for um, marketing and media you know, continues to shine through here. Um, so Ree was back in America by July uh, when Bruce Lee called to say that the movie had been edited and released. It was the very next day when Bruce Lee passed away. So there's a pretty good chance that Ree was one of the last people um, in the U.S. to talk to Bruce Lee before he passed away. So not only was uh, was June Rhee a um, you know a talented marketer, a, uh, a an industrious entrepreneur, an instructor, but he was also a trainer. Um, he was uh, June Rhee was one of Muhammad Ali's uh, main trainers before. Uh, the fight with Joe Frazier. Ree knew that Ali and Bruce had never had the chance to meet, so he took the opportunity to show Ali the punch. You know, the, the some say it's the one-inch punch. Um, Ree called it the acupunch. It was the that extraordinarily fast punch that uh, Bruce Lee used, which was very difficult to block based on human reaction time. Um, re-demonstrated the punch to Ali. Ali couldn't block it. So Ali asked Ree to teach him the punch, which he used in the fight against Frazier. Um, Ali also used the same punch to defeat the British champion Richard Dunn, um, and, and, and that resulted in a knockout. Um, so Ree was uh, the head coach for Ali during the Dunn fight, he was also Ali's head coach for the infamous fight against Antonio Inoki, which was the boxing versus wrestling match in Japan. Um, so that was, and that's a, another piece of martial arts history that's pretty fascinating. Um, so go check out that fight on YouTube. Um, in 1980, Junri retired uh, from you know, active training and competition. Um, he traveled the world. He continued to preach uh, Taekwondo. Um, he played harmonica with the orchestra. He addressed the United Nations. Um, he spent a lot of time in um, Russia and um, the former Soviet bloc countries, um, bringing the word of, of Taekwondo to, uh, to those parts of the world. And lived out the ends, you know, lived out the the rest of his life, continuing to preach martial arts, physical fitness, and um, basically discipline, uh, which Jerry and I talk a lot about um, in, in all aspects of your life. 
Um, unfortunately, Grandmaster Junery passed away on April 30th of 2018. He was, his son, Master uh, Chunri, took his place at the head of the Junri uh, Taekwondo system. And they currently have schools in the Ukraine, Russia, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, and all over the United States. So Junri was a, a fascinating individual, um, again, a true pioneer uh, of the martial arts world. And um, I, for all of you Rolling Rocks family who've been listening for a while, you guys may remember when we had Sensei Jay Haynes on. And after I had done some of my research on Junri, um, the joke is that, that Jay Haynes knows everybody when it comes to martial arts. So um, I decided I would be a little bit of a smart ass and see if I could stump him. So I, uh, I, shot, I shot Sensei Jay a text message um, that night and said, Hey Jay, I got two words for you. Junri. And about two seconds later, I got a text message back that said, oh yeah, I met him at so-and-so martial arts uh, convention in, in, in Austin, Texas, or Colorado, or California. I don't remember where Jay said it was. Yeah, he was a really cool guy. He was, you know, and he started talking about June Ree, and I'm like, oh my God, Jay Haynes does know everybody. I really thought I'd pulled one over on you, Jay, but I should have known. Um, but so from the beginnings of this story back when, you know, I was in the fifth, basically the fifth grade, seeing this commercial over and over and over. Um, and that was a pretty formative time in my life. That was when I really started to become interested in martial arts. And, um, I started to, um, train Goju-Ru at a local, um, Okinawan karate school and, you know, I always wanted to know a little bit more about about this Junri um, thing, but it pops in Jerry and I's head occasionally because we have such very strong, very, very pleasant, nostalgic memories about those commercials and about that jingle. And like I said, you'll if you go back, if you're really tortured, you go back and listen to some of the older episodes, and you'll hear Jerry or I say, "Nobody bothers me," and, and just. Everybody remember that little kid at the end who said, nobody bothers me either, and he winked at the, winked at the camera. That dude is Master Chun-Ri, the head of the Chun-Ri martial arts system. So that's pretty freaking cool. Um, so that's all I've got for my portion of today's show. Jerry's up next. Um, he'll talk about the fights, and he'll, he'll give us a little seriously. We'll be back next week with... Some more fights. I think we're going to cover the the latest uh, who's number one that was a couple of weeks ago. We were going to talk about it last week, but um, the talk about uh, Nganu versus uh, Cyril Gan ran a little long. So we'll probably cover um, who's number one, um, the the Craig Jones versus Ruloto fight, and then the Flow Grappling um, 2020 awards uh, that they did last week. And then we'll have... More shenanigans, and Jerry will have another seriously, and I'm sure we'll be up to our our, our usual hijinks next week. But so for right now, I'm Scott Barker. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Junry for uh, the memory and the inspiration again to martial arts. Jerry Armitrout's up next. We'll see you next week.
so due to complications as life will have it we're doing something separately this week uh, so I'm just going to talk a little bit about Bellator we had uh, a couple of fights there Ron Bader uh, managed to win his fight he retained the heavyweight title which is pretty good. He was fighting a much younger fighter. Um, another one of uh, Fedor's uh, protégés. And Ryan just dominated him. He dropped him in the first round. And just went on to control the whole fight. Also, Benson Henderson fought on that card. This was his last fight on his contract with Bellator. Uh, he managed to outgrapple his opponent. Get a win. And now, see what happens with him. He said that he knows he underperformed for the amount of money he was being paid by Bellator. So he's not sure what the negotiation will hold. He still wants to fight. If uh, things don't go well, he'll probably go to Khabib's organization at Eagle FC. Uh, which could be interesting for him. We'll see. I mean, Benson's really not that old. He's really never taken a whole lot of damage, so I don't see why he can't uh, continue to fight if he so chooses. Speaking of Eagle FC, uh, Rashad Evans came back this week uh, after retirement, and he got uh, a decision victory over a, a younger fighter. He looked pretty good, so... Good for him. Uh, see, we've got... We didn't have a UFC this week, but we have some coming up. Got Robert Whitaker. Israel, I'd say, uh, two coming up, which is going to be interesting. Uh, I like to thank... I thank Robert Whitaker. If he's... Been paying attention, which he does. He's a smart, smart fighter. He should. I think he takes the fight. Uh, I think he wins in the fourth round uh, via TKO. But you never know. Israel is so unorthodox and so smart. And his fight knowledge is amazing. His ability to change uh, his strategy as the fight goes on. Uh, it's top notch, so we'll see. Alright. So, one other thing is, um, last show we talked about Francis Ngannou being training at the UFC Complex. I like to correct that. He no longer trains at the UFC Center. He is now a member of team, uh, Extreme Couture. Uh, Randy Couture's team. It's still in Vegas, but that's where he He's a member of that team now. He no longer trains at the UFC's center. He underwent surgery as well on his knee. He's out at least nine months. He's not under contract anymore with the UFC. Uh, we'll see how negotiations go with that. They're uh, having a lot of difficulties apparently. Uh, 
thing is, they said that the UFC has filed a lawsuit against Engano and his team for uh, talking to other agencies while under contract. I don't know how that works, but uh, apparently they told him, informed Engano of that right before he fought Cyril Ghosn. So we'll see what the future holds. Um, Francis still says he wants to fight Tyson Fury. I don't think that's a good idea, but hey, you never know. Stranger things have happened. Uh, next, uh, we've got, got some interesting things going on with the Paul brothers. <clears throat> Jake uh, is now talking about he'll go to Eagle FC and fight MMA only if he he gets to fight Khabib, which would be uh, probably the biggest mistake he ever made. But again, the guys, I don't like him, but he has managed to make himself a very wealthy young man. So we'll see what happens. His brothers accepted a fight, uh, another boxing match. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. Um, this is his first fight, I think, since he fought Mayweather. So they're finding ways to make money and stay relevant. So and being a promoter of their own fights, they can kind of do whatever they want. Um, but hey, you know, this is what people want to watch it. As long as people want to watch it, they're going to continue to do it. It's the great thing about, you know, capitalism and, you know, there's someone willing to pay for it and someone willing to do it. All right. Um, other thing I want to talk about a little bit is, um, we had a um, court ruling this week in California. A 26-year-old uh, individual man who now identifies as female was sentenced to two years in a juvenile detention center, even though he's 26 or, you know, identifies as a woman, so okay. Uh, for the sexual assault of a 10-year-old girl a few years ago. The individual at the time followed the young lady into a bathroom at a restaurant and so, uh, assaulted her. He was about a week before his 18th birthday when this happened. He's just recently been taken into custody and went into um, went on trial for it. And for whatever reason, the DA decided to charge him as a minor since he was under the age of 18, only by a week, but under the age of 18 when he uh, perpetrated the incident to try him as a minor and then 
put him in a juvenile detention facility. The judge in the case was very, very upset, uh, but said that his hands were tied and there was nothing he could do. It was up to the DA to elevate it to an adult, and they refused. This was in San Francisco. Since the incident of the 10-year-old, apparently this individual has sexually assaulted two other individuals. There's no uh, information whether or not there's uh, going to be more charges filed on those. But we'll see. Uh, like I said, when you sentence an adult who's 26 and you decide that just they were, you know, decide that you are not going to charge them as adult even though they were only a few days before they turned 18, and give them literally a smack on the wrist for a assault of a child, and then put him in a facility with other children, you should not be uh, representing the community as district attorney. I'm very, you know, I've been very vocal by what I think how I feel about this sort of stuff, and this is just beyond comprehension for me. There's no way this should be accepted or acceptable. Um, and it's shocking that a district attorney would feel that this is A way to keep communities safe and to take care of um, justice and to provide closure for the victim. This is very disturbing and it seems to be the new trend is not to punish these individuals for crimes. And you see more and more there's, uh, a push to make sex with minors acceptable in society. And not a crime. And you've got to wonder if that's where we're going with this. Is Even though this little girl was only 10 and was assaulted. Wasn't a willing participant in the incident. The perpetrator's only going to get basically a minor inconvenience for the next two years. And this little girl. Well she'll should be 18. We're close to it now. We'll be probably still dealing with the after effects and the trauma of this. So way to go, San Francisco. Way to be woke and uh, progressive and not to punish wrongdoers. You know, sends a great message to people. And so I'll keep it short this week. Um, it's not really easy to do a podcast by yourself with no interaction back and forth uh, I'd like to give uh, our condolences and basically uh, to we had a shooting here yesterday at our local college in Bridgewater uh, perpetrator uh, they're still on a not quite clear what he was doing uh, he had a firearm he used to go to the college he doesn't they don't believe he does now no one's really sure. He was on campus. Uh, was a place he shouldn't have been. Staff called security. Two members of the security team showed up. Uh, 
they spoke to him, and then he drew a gun and opened fire. Both um, campus security officers were killed, uh, Jefferson and Painter, and the individual was wounded, and then later taken into custody. No, no students were harmed, and at this time they're not sure if he was shot by himself or if uh, Officer Painter was able to wound him before he lost his life. Um, both of these gentlemen, with their actions, probably saved a lot of innocent um, students from being attacked. Uh, a little bit they know right now is this gentleman was off. Used to go there, uh, but there there's no idea right now on a motive. There's still work trying to figure things out. He was taken into custody, so hopefully we'll know something in the near future. But Jefferson and Painter, um, they did, they gave their lives to save others, and the Rolling Rocks. Um, family likes to send our condolences to their families and their our and our respect for what they did. Um, so with that, um, close the day. Um, Scott will be adding uh, stuff to it as well. So, and hopefully we'll be back on normal here this week. All right. I'll see you later. Bye. The music for tonight's episode was But I Am Shafts of Light by Mayeth from their album, Wailing Village.